Section 49 of Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Clevenger. Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant by Ulysses S. Grant. Chapter 49 sherman's campaign in georgia siege of atlanta death of general mcpherson attempt to capture andersonville capture of atlanta after separating from sherman in cincinnati i went on to washington as already stated while he returned to nashville to assume the duties of his new command his military division was now composed of four departments and embraced all the territory west of the allegheny mountains and east of the mississippi river together with the state of arkansas in the trans mississippi the most easterly of these was the department of the ohio general schofield commanding the next was the department of the cumberland general thomas commanding the third the department of the tennessee general mcpherson commanding and general steele still commanded the trans mississippi or department of arkansas the last named department was so far away that sherman could not communicate with it very readily after starting on his spring campaign and it was therefore soon transferred from his military division to that of the gulf where general canby who had relieved general banks was in command the movements of the armies as i have stated in a former chapter were to be simultaneous i fixing the day to start when the season should be far enough advanced it was hoped for the roads to be in a condition for the troops to march general sherman at once set himself to work preparing for the task which was assigned him to accomplish in the spring campaign mcpherson lay at huntsville with about twenty four thousand men guarding those points of tennessee which were regarded as most worth holding thomas with over sixty thousand men of the army of the cumberland was at chattanooga and schofield with about fourteen thousand men was at knoxville with these three armies numbering about one hundred thousand men in all sherman was to move on the day fixed for the general advance with a view of destroying johnston's army and capturing atlanta he visited each of these commands to inform himself as to their condition and it was found to be speaking generally good one of the first matters to turn his attention to was that of getting before the time arrived for starting an accumulation of supplies forward to chattanooga sufficiently large to warrant a movement he found when he got to that place that the trains over the single track railroad which was frequently interrupted for a day or two at a time were only sufficient to meet the daily wants of the troops without bringing forward any surplus of any kind he found however that trains were being used to transport all the beef cattle, horses for the cavalry, and even teams that were being brought to the front. 
He at once changed all this, and required beef cattle, teams, cavalry horses, and everything that could travel, even the troops, to be marched, and used the road exclusively for transporting supplies. In this way, he was able to accumulate an abundance before the time finally fixed upon for the move, the 4th of May. As I have said already, Johnston was at Dalton, which was nearly one-fourth of the way between Chattanooga and Atlanta. The country is mountainous all the way to Atlanta, abounding in mountain streams, some of them of considerable volume. Dalton is on ground where water drains towards Atlanta and into one of the main streams rising northeast from there and flowing southwest, this being the general direction which all the main streams of that section take, with smaller tributaries entering into them. Johnston had been preparing himself for this campaign during the entire winter. The best positions for defense had been selected all the way from Dalton back to Atlanta, and very strongly entrenched so that, as he might be forced to fall back from one position, he would have another to fall into in his rear. His position at Dalton was so very strongly entrenched that no doubt he expected, or at least hoped, to hold Sherman there and prevent him from getting any further. With a less skillful general, and one disposed to take no risks, I have no doubt that he would have succeeded. Sherman's plan was to start Schofield, who was farthest back, a few days in advance from Knoxville, having him move on the direct road to Dalton. Thomas was to move out to Ringgold. It had been Sherman's intention to cross McPherson over the Tennessee River at Huntsville or Decatur, and move him south from there so as to have him come into the road running from Chattanooga to Atlanta a good distance to the rear of the point Johnston was occupying. But when that was contemplated, it was hoped that McPherson alone would have troops enough to cope with Johnston if the latter should move against him while unsupported by the balance of the army. In this he was disappointed. Two of McPherson's veteran divisions had re-enlisted on the express provision that they were to have a furlough. This furlough had not yet expired, and they were not back. Then again, Sherman had lent Banks two divisions under A.J. Smith, the winter before, to cooperate with the trans-Mississippi forces, and this with the express pledge that they should be back by a time specified so as to be prepared for this very campaign. It is hardly necessary to say they were not returned. That department continued to absorb troops to no purpose to the end of the war. This left McPherson so weak that the part of the plan above indicated had to be changed. He was therefore brought up to Chattanooga and moved from there on a road to the right of Thomas, the two coming together about Dalton. The three armies were abreast, all ready to start promptly on time. 
Sherman soon found that Dalton was so strongly fortified that it was useless to make any attempt to carry it by assault, and even to carry it by regular approaches was impracticable. There was a narrowing up in the mountain between the National and Confederate armies, through which a stream, a wagon road, and a railroad ran. Besides, the stream had been dammed so that the valley was a lake. Through this gorge the troops would have to pass. McPherson was, therefore, sent around by the right to come out by the way of Snake Creek Gap into the rear of the enemy. This was a surprise to Johnston, and about the 13th he decided to abandon his position at Dalton. On the 15th there was very hard fighting about Rosaka. But our cavalry, having been sent around to the right, got near the road in the enemy's rear. Again Johnston fell back, our army pursuing. The pursuit was continued to Kingston, which was reached on the 19th with very little fighting, except that Newton's division overtook the rear of Johnston's army and engaged it. Sherman was now obliged to halt for the purpose of bringing up his railroad trains. He was depending upon the railroad for all of his supplies, and as of course the railroad was wholly destroyed as Johnston fell back, it had to be rebuilt. This work was pushed forward night and day, and caused much less delay than most persons would naturally expect in a mountainous country where there were so many bridges to be rebuilt. The campaign to Atlanta was managed with the most consummate skill, the enemy being flanked out of one position after another all the way there. It is true, this was not accomplished without a good deal of fighting, some of it very hard fighting, rising to the dignity of very important battles. Neither were single positions gained in a day. On the contrary, weeks were spent at some, and about Atlanta more than a month was consumed. It was the 23rd of May before the road was finished up to the rear of Sherman's army, and the pursuit renewed. This pursuit brought him up to the vicinity of Alatoona. This place was very strongly entrenched, and naturally a very defensible position. An assault upon it was not thought of, but preparations were made to flank the enemy out of it. This was done by sending a large force around our right, by the way of Dallas, to reach the rear of the enemy. Before reaching there, however, they found the enemy fortified in their way, and there resulted hard fighting for about a week at a place called New Hope Church. On the left our troops also were fortified, and as close up to the enemy as they could get. They kept working still farther around to the left toward the railroad. This was the case more particularly with the cavalry. By the 4th of June Johnston found that he was being hemmed in so rapidly that he drew off, and Alatoona was left in our possession. Alatoona being an important place was strongly entrenched for occupation by our troops before advancing farther. 
and made a secondary base of supplies. The railroad was finished up to that point, the entrenchments completed, storehouses provided for food, and the army got in readiness for a farther advance. The rains, however, were falling in such torrents that it was impossible to move the army by the side roads, which they would have to move upon, in order to turn Johnston out of his new position. While Sherman's army lay here, General F. P. Blair returned to it, bringing with him the two divisions of veterans who had been on furlough. Johnston had fallen back to Marietta and Kennesaw Mountain, where strong entrenchments awaited him. At this latter place our troops made an assault upon the enemy's lines after having got their own lines up close to him, and failed, sustaining considerable loss. But during the progress of the battle, Schofield was gaining ground to the left, and the cavalry on his left were gaining still more toward the enemy's rear. These operations were completed by the 3rd of July, when it was found that Johnston had evacuated the place, he was pursued at once. Sherman had made every preparation to abandon the railroad, leaving a strong guard in his entrenchments. He had intended, moving out with twenty days' rations and plenty of ammunition, to come in on the railroad again at the Chattahoochee River. Johnston frustrated this plan by himself starting back as above stated. This time he fell back to the Chattahoochee. About the 5th of July he was besieged again, Sherman getting easy possession of the Chattahoochee River both above and below him. The enemy was again flanked out of his position, or so frightened by flanking movements, that on the night of the ninth he fell back across the river. Here Johnston made a stand until the 17th, when Sherman's old tactics prevailed again, and the final movement toward Atlanta began. Johnston was now relieved of the command, and Hood superseded him. Johnston's tactics in this campaign do not seem to have met with much favor, either in the eyes of the administration at Richmond, or of the people of that section of the South in which he was commanding. The very fact of a change of commanders being ordered under such circumstances was an indication of a change of policy, and that now they would become the aggressors, the very thing our troops wanted. For my own part, I think that Johnston's tactics were right. Anything that could have prolonged the war a year beyond the time that it did finally close would probably have exhausted the North to such an extent that they might then have abandoned the contest and agreed to a separation. Atlanta was very strongly entrenched all the way around in a circle about a mile and a half outside of the city. In addition to this, there were advanced entrenchments, which had to be taken before a close siege could be commenced. Sure enough, as indicated by the change of commanders, 
the enemy was about to assume the offensive. On the 20th he came out and attacked the Army of the Cumberland most furiously. Hooker's Corps and Newton's and Johnson's divisions were the principal ones engaged in this contest, which lasted more than an hour. But the Confederates were then forced to fall back inside their main lines. The losses were quite heavy on both sides. On this day, General Gresham, since our postmaster general, was very badly wounded. During the night, Hood abandoned his outer lines, and our troops were advanced. The investment had not been relinquished for a moment during the day. During the night of the 21st, Hood moved out again, passing by our left flank, which was then in motion to get a position further in rear of him, and a desperate battle ensued, which lasted most of the day of the 22nd. At first the battle went very much in favor of the Confederates, our troops being somewhat surprised. While our troops were advancing, they were struck in flank, and their flank was enveloped. But they had become too thorough veterans to be thrown into irreparable confusion by an unexpected attack when off their guard, and soon they were in order and engaging the enemy with the advantage now of knowing where their antagonist was. The field of battle continued to expand until it embraced about seven miles of ground. Finally, however, and before night, the enemy was driven back into the city. It was during this battle that McPherson, while passing from one column to another, was instantly killed. In his death, the army lost one of its ablest, purest, and best generals. Garrard had been sent out with his cavalry to get upon the railroad east of Atlanta and to cut it in the direction of Augusta. He was successful in this and returned about the time of the battle. Rousseau had also come up from Tennessee with a small division of cavalry, having crossed the Tennessee River about Decatur and made a raid into Alabama. Finally, when hard-pressed, he had come in, striking the railroad in rear of Sherman, and reported to him about this time. The Battle of the 22nd is usually known as the Battle of Atlanta, although the city did not fall into our hands until the 2nd of September. Preparations went on, as before, to flank the enemy out of his position. The work was tedious, and the lines that had to be maintained were very long. Our troops were gradually worked around to the east until they struck the road between Decatur and Atlanta. These lines were strongly fortified as were those to the north and west of the city, all as close up to the enemy's lines as practicable, in order to hold them with the smallest possible number of men, the design being to detach an army to move by our right and try to get upon the railroad down south of Atlanta. On the 27th, the movement by the right flank commenced. On the 28th, the enemy struck our right flank, General Logan commanding, with great vigor. Logan entrenched himself hastily and, by that means, was enabled 
to resist all assaults and inflict a great deal of damage upon the enemy these assaults were continued to the middle of the afternoon and resumed once or twice still later in the day the enemy's losses in these unsuccessful assaults were fearful during that evening the enemy in logan's front withdrew into the town this now left sherman's army close up to the confederate lines extending from a point directly east of the city around by the north and west of it for a distance of fully ten miles the whole of this line being entrenched and made stronger every day they remained there in the latter part of july sherman sent stoneman to destroy the railroads to the south about macon he was then to go east and if possible release our prisoners about andersonville there were painful stories current at the time about the great hardships these prisoners had to endure in the way of general bad treatment in the way in which they were housed and in the way in which they were fed great sympathy was felt for them and it was thought that even if they could be turned loose upon the country it would be a great relief to them but the attempt proved a failure mccook who commanded a small brigade was first reported to have been captured but he got back having inflicted a good deal of damage upon the enemy he had also taken some prisoners but encountering afterwards a largely superior force of the enemy he was obliged to drop his prisoners and get back as best he could with what men he had left he had lost several hundred men out of his small command on the fourth of august colonel adams commanding a little brigade of about a thousand men returned reporting stoneman and all but himself as lost i myself had heard around richmond of the capture of stoneman and had sent sherman word which he received the rumor was confirmed there also from other sources a few days after colonel adams's return colonel capron also got in with a small detachment and confirmed the report of the capture of stoneman with something less than a thousand men it seems that stoneman finding the escape of all his force was impossible had made arrangements for the escape of two divisions he covered the movement of these divisions to the rear with a force of about seven hundred men and at length surrendered himself and his detachment to the commanding confederate in this raid however much damage was inflicted upon the enemy by the destruction of cars locomotives army wagons manufactories of military supplies etc on the fourth and fifth sherman endeavored to get upon the railroad to our right where schofield was in command but these attempts failed utterly general palmer was charged with being the cause of this failure to a great extent by both general sherman and general schofield but i am not prepared to say this although a question seems to have arisen with palmer as to whether schofield had any right to command him if he did raise this question while an action was going on that act alone was exceedingly reprehensible 
About the same time Wheeler got upon our railroad north of Rosaka and destroyed it nearly up to Dalton. This cut Sherman off from communication with the north for several days. Sherman responded to this attack on his lines of communication by directing one upon theirs. Kilpatrick started on the night of the 18th of August to reach the Macon Road about Jonesboro. He succeeded in doing so, passed entirely around the Confederate lines of Atlanta, and was back again in his former position on our left by the 22nd. These little affairs, however, contributed but very little to the grand result. They annoyed, it is true, but any damage thus done to a railroad by any cavalry expedition is soon repaired. Sherman made preparations for a repetition of his tactics, that is, for a flank movement with as large a force as could be got together to some point in the enemy's rear. Sherman commenced this last movement on the 25th of August, and on the 1st of September was well up towards the railroad twenty miles south of Atlanta. Here he found Hardy entrenched ready to meet him a battle ensued but he was unable to drive hardy away before night set in under cover of the night however hardy left of his own accord that night hood blew up his military works such as he thought would be valuable in our hands and decamped the next morning at daylight general h w slocum who was commanding north of the city moved in and took possession of atlanta and notified sherman sherman then moved deliberately back taking three days to reach the city and occupied a line extending from decatur on the left to atlanta in the center with his troops extending out of the city for some distance to the right the campaign had lasted about four months and was one of the most memorable in history there was but little if anything in the whole campaign now that it is over to criticize at all and nothing to criticize severely it was creditable alike to the general who commanded and the army which had executed it sherman had on this campaign some bright wide-awake division and brigade commanders whose alertness added a host to the efficiency of his command the troops now went to work to make themselves comfortable and to enjoy a little rest after their arduous campaign. The city of Atlanta was turned into a military base. The citizens were all compelled to leave. Sherman also very wisely prohibited the assembling of the army of sutlers and traders who always follow in the wake of an army in the field if permitted to do so from trading with the citizens and getting the money of the soldiers for articles of but little use to them and for which they are made to pay most exorbitant prices he limited the number of these traders to one for each of his three armies the news of sherman's success reached the north instantaneously and set the country all aglow 
this was the first great political campaign for the republicans in their canvass of eighteen sixty four it was followed later by sheridan's campaign in the shenandoah valley and these two campaigns probably had more effect in settling the election of the following november than all the speeches all the bonfires and all the parading with banners and bands of music in the north end of section forty nine recording by jim clevenger little rock arkansas jim at j o c c l e v dot com